The following is brought to you courtesy of the No Phony Podcast Network, home of independent awesomeness. That must have been awkward. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that one sucked. Bob Vance. Vance Refrigeration. He's on his iPhone with Satan, okay? All right, here we are again, episode four of Deluxe Edition. I'm here with the ever-charming, beautiful Casey, and I love, you know, we are such a technologically advanced podcast that you just had to play the intro music for me on your phone. Just another peek behind the curtain, folks. It's Casey's editing skills that we're all going <laughs> to benefit from in a few. Uh, how are you doing, Case? What's new? Very good. How are you, Bill? I'm living the dream. Heaven can wait. I'm in the choir waiting for it to end. The quar. Life in the quar. This thing has been crazy because all this time has passed and it feels like uh it feels like decades have passed. But all this time is really just like two and a half months. But it sure feels like a lot of friggin' time and I'm so sore. Like I'm just laying around the house. <laughs> you know? I'm like that that road that like is always closed, always has construction going on. It's like, are you ever gonna finish fixing this thing? No, I'm that broken road. And it's just getting worse. Like, I'm going to be a totally different person when this thing is over. I decided it's time to give my kidneys a break, make my lungs pay a little bit, so I stopped drinking. Because that's a big thing. Everybody's been drinking a lot more, you know, during this quarantine. Not me. No, I discovered cannabis. I now have my medical marijuana card. So, oh. yeah. So, no more high IPA calories. Now it's just munching after midnight when I should be, <laughs> like a freaking gremlin. So, yeah, that's been that's been really what's new in my whole world. Well, how about you? What are you doing? Just the other day, I had to go to Texas for uh, an emergency job. Just came home last yesterday, and uh, it was a, a rough ride home. Flight got delayed. It's just a pain in the ass with all this uh, quarantine stuff going on. You know, things are completely different with traveling now. Yeah, and you're always in the air. I mean, every time I talk to you, you're in some town, and I'm like, he made that town up. That's there's not really a, a town called. Where where were you the other day? You were telling me you're in San and something. I'm like San Antonio. I'm like, no, he's actually in a real place I've never heard of. Yeah, San Angelo, Texas. Yeah, San Angelo. I thought you made it up. Nope, tiny little town in Texas with a Home Depot. Wouldn't that be amazing if all of our listeners are from San Angelo and I just insulted them, and now they're going to be like, <laughs> we lose all of our listeners. I didn't mean to insult you. It's not. I just didn't think you were real. We lose all of our San Angelo listeners. Yeah, you know, they make up a big <laughs> look at our demographics. It's ninety eight percent San Angelo. San Angelo. Yeah, man, you're always in the air. And you do our editing, right? So you do a lot of the, the stuff. I, you must be up all night just I drinking am. coffee and editing. I am, yes, especially on the road. So what I do at night. As uh, as uh, you know, I do have another podcast called On the Road with Jim and Casey. And, yeah, we do episodes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So uh, it's quite a bit of podcasting and editing. Well, we do a video, too. You know, you've convinced me that we have to do video because that's what we do nowadays with podcasting. I thought it was just an audio thing when I volunteered to do this with you. But, shit, I got a face for radio. I really don't like being on camera. 
So you got to like facetune me or something. Try to make me look a little better. Sure. Yeah, man, you're doing a lot. <laughs> turn around. It's like I look and I, I look like I'm, you know, a dog or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am learning Lightworks. I upgraded my Lightworks account, and uh, I am learning Lightworks quite a bit. So you may see a logo down here in the corner now, or an icon, as Bill calls it. That's right. Uh, the Galaxy of Terror episode that we did last week, people will notice I started adding pictures when we're talking about something. So if I say like a name of an actor, like Clint Eastwood, I'll pop a picture of Clint up there so you know who we're talking about. So. So I it's think pretty it, fun learning learning all this stuff. I mean, it's it's a lot of work, and it's it's a pain in the ass because now I'm learning how to cut things from the video as well as the audio because, like before, the audio was completely different from the video versions of our podcast because I've been doing that for so long that I know how to edit the the videos pretty or the I'm sorry I'm, I know how to edit the the audio right, a lot right. better. But I found out how to do it on Lightworks, and it's almost it's almost like identical as to how you do it on, on in audacity for the audio version. So, so basically until this episode, you're saying the audio version is less shitty than the video version. I mean, we, yeah. we, we have no problem being transparent on the show. We're, we don't have any secrets. Nope. No. And uh, so another secret, we already recorded the episode that you're about to see. I'll tell you, that was a really fun interview i mean he he's got some stories to tell we, we should definitely interview him again but maybe when we can actually do it in person for for people who may not be totally aware of robert robert is one of those sort of renaissance artists um he's been in tons of different things he's produced he's written he's you know you might know him from a lot of like um early 90s and late you know 80s horror like some of those like really crazy silly low budget tongue-in-cheek like we're making this for fun kind of just everybody enjoy and laugh and don't take it too seriously horror and then you know he's also in the office like he's very well known for being in the office a show that i know casey loves so having that kind of diversity it's really interesting to sort of dig in which is what we do on the show right we dig into classic pop culture try to get stories try to get information that we didn't know about before so that when we go back and we watch these things these shows like his movie psycho cop and Psycho Cop 2, which are my two favorites. You know, you get to look at these things a little bit more like you're, you're, you're uh, maybe listening to something from a director's cut. He's definitely been around, like uh, Larry Hankin that we interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert's been in over 100 movies and television shows. And, uh, yeah, just has quite the background. And uh, it's really fun to talk to. Yeah. So I say, why don't we just roll the tape? Because I don't think people want to hear from us anymore. They're like, let's bring on the star. <laughs> All right. So, uh, joining us today, the great Robert Ray Schaefer. Hello. How you doing, man? You good. Greetings. Good to have you. Thank you. So, we're just going to, you know, kind of ask you some good questions. We really try to get, like, good stories, and we, we, we really like to get behind some of the um, some of the cool pop culture things out there. So, we'd love any kind of good stories that you might have or anything from the old days, even the office days. I mean, we're... We're fans. We're actually very interested in some of the. I I love the the psycho cop stuff and a lot of your horror stuff. So I'll probably be asking a little bit about that. I know you know uh, Casey knows a bit more about the office stuff. So hopefully great. we'll have a great conversation. Well, guilty. I'm guilty on all counts. So the prosecution can have at it. I I, I hear your voice and I'm kind of like, oh my god, that's that voice that I've heard for. <laughs> four decades. I mean, that movie came out in the '90s, so I can't do math. So I guess that's about thirty years old. 
Well, it's been a while. It's, uh, it, it's amazing how fast it went. You know, it seems like I just started. Wow. Yeah. How many movies have you been in, in TV shows and programs and commercials? I mean, you've been in a lot of things. Oh, it's, it's well over a hundred and some credits. It's, I mean, I, I'm always humbled. I think of John Carradine, you know, the father to, to David Carradine and, and Keith and, and uh, Bobby. Uh, I think he did 475 movies in his career. <laughs> really? So, yeah. Of course, at the end of his life, producers, he wouldn't travel to a set. He lived in Malibu, so the producers would come to his set, would actually film him at his property. <laughs> a couple of them shot him. You know, he was a notorious drunk uh, and, and <laughs> drunk all the <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I really like films when they talk about what's behind the scenes and you did Dick Dixter, which is actually a, a great movie. It's really funny. And, and what's really fun about that is I feel like, you know, you're sort of showing some of the life behind the scenes. I always think about, you know, growing up, you're watching movies and it's, it's a, it's a fantasy world. You don't really think about how all that stuff is produced. And then as I got older, I said, well, you know, what kind of, it's gotta be like a job. You still have to, you know, punch in and punch out. And there's just a lot of people doing a lot of things. And your movie was hysterical because it's like, oh, wow, sometimes it can be dysfunctional. So have you ever had experiences like that in your career? Well, not to that extreme, obviously. That's, that's as weird a universe as I could create. I, I, what I was going for there, when I first started uh, learning how to act, I went to acting school with a great LA teacher named Peggy Fury. And we studied playwrights and specific tile, uh, styles of theater, uh, including French farce, which was the playwrights Moliere and Fadeau. And so the thing about farce is that it's amplified at pace and, and absurdity. So that's really, I mean, Dixter's absurd, but his world is still is weird and real enough in the end, even though it's absurd, you still kind of believe what's happening. <laughs> it's definitely it's a lower budget movie right i i don't think that's an offensive thing to say it seemed like you were thinking that way oh yeah and, no it's deconstructed movie making is what it is i mean i'm not ashamed to say it i made it in six days for seventy five thousand dollars you know um i worked on one of the most famous movies of all time in the low budget robert townsend's hollywood shuffle Robert Townsend made that movie uh, for $100,000 in 1987 on his credit cards. And so it only took me 30 years to realize what Robert was teaching me was make your own movie. Don't wait to get a part from somebody else. Make your own movie. Play the role you've always wanted to play. So the part I always wanted to play was uh, Peter O'Toole in, um, <laughs> in The Stuntman. Uh, he's a, a, an absurd director. I mean, an amazing role for Peter O'Toole, one of the greatest actors ever. So that's really where the seed of the character started. And uh, then I just made it even more ridiculous. <laughs> well, we know you're a writer on there. It also said that you're a producer. I've never really known what the role of a producer is. Is it somebody who comes in with the cash or is it somebody who's like, I'm working for the person with the cash and I'm going to help shape it? It's all of that. I mean, uh, I, I don't really like producing. It's too much work. I mean, <laughs> I had, I did everything, everything on this movie, which is great because it makes it my movie. But also when the, you know, the distributor says, I need a line by line of everything that's said and done in the movie. Who did that? <laughs> the producer, me. I mean, there, there's, that took me a couple of days to do that. 
it's funny. I always tell a funny story about this. When we made that movie, Dixter, I wanted to make it uh, what's known as comedy safe where it could play on TV. So that meant that I didn't write many swear words into the into the script. However, it ended up with 54 <laughs> F-bombs. <laughs> and that was just the actors. I mean, actors are just can't work, say a sentence without it anymore, right? I mean, one, uh, Tim Abel, who played Tony Baritoni, the hitman in the movie, he drops four of them in, in the first 20 seconds on screen. And so I was like, Tim, none of that's, this is not comedy safe. <laughs> but, you know, and, and now when I'm cutting the movie, there's no way, no way to cut any of it out or cut around it. I don't have alternate takes. You know, I, I didn't take the time to do them, at, you know, when we were shooting it. But the amazing thing about making the movie was that, like I said, we did it in six days, but we were, we were actually doing 15-page days and wrapping early. Of course, the key to that was the mockumentary style. We had three cameras going at all times, so every scene is covered, uh, you know, wide, uh, medium, and close. And so, uh, amazingly, how much footage you have when you have three cameras romping. You have to sit with the editor and sort of direct where the edits are made, or is is an editor somebody who just kind of goes off and tries to create something from that person's own vision? Because I can't imagine you're also sitting in the editing bay. No, I cut it. I insist on having final cut. That's the only way you can make the movie yours is if you're the one who's cutting it. Now, I had an editor who worked inside the scenes, but I assembled all the scenes the way I wanted them. And like I said, you know, with handheld cameras, that changes the perspective. That means you're not having to worry about crossing axes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you're grabbing, you can grab inside the shot. So... Um, he fine-tuned my scenes, but no, I cut it. I love cutting it. That's how you make a movie. You got to have the footage to make it, but it's all about cutting it. Uh, the first uh, edit of Dixter was two hours and 11 minutes. Now, you, you can't have a comedy that's two hours and 11 minutes. So I cut that down to 87 minutes. And it was hard because I loved the stuff. You know, it was funny. I mean, I didn't want to get rid of it, but did it keep the narrative on the train track? And like I said, I wanted to be at farce pace. So that means that fast, 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 fast. So you're saying farce pace, like F-A-R-C-E, like it's a farce. F-A-R-C-E, farce. Yeah. Oh, it definitely, yeah, it, it, I, I get that. I get that because it it's one of those movies where you just, something is always happening next and you're just, what's, what's going to happen now? Well, there has to be a fight in every scene, right? Dick has to have a fight. There has to be conflict. I mean, he, his, he's, listen, here's the thing about Dick Dixter. He's everything that Hollywood claims to hate. Hollywood claims to hate misogyny, but they're misogynist as hell. They claim to be, uh, you know, hate racism. Uh, I don't, you know, I've been around it for 40 years. I've seen a lot of it. So, you know, as long as you say you're a good person, then everything's fine, right? Oh, no, I hate racism. And, or Harvey Weinstein is, is, Harvey Weinstein is essentially Dick Dixter. I mean, I, a buddy of mine was Harvey Weinstein's driver, personal assistant for two years in the 90s when Miramax was at its heyday. And I remember saying to him all the time, he would whine to me every time we went out and played golf and say, oh, my God, this Harvey, oh, what an animal. And he, I was like, well, quit. Why are you working for the guy? And he's like, well, you know, it's Miramax. I mean, he loved the prestige. So he took the, he ate the shit burger, 
because he liked work, telling everybody, oh, I'm Harvey Weinstein's personal assistant. Wow. You know, uh, again, the most danger was taking the walk up to the dude's uh, hotel room. Of course, a lot of them took that walk. So draw your own conclusions. <laughs> so, Robert, what? how did you uh, get into acting? What, did you want to be an actor when you were a little, uh, kid? or? No, no, I never had any desire. I didn't. I knew nothing about it. I didn't even really watch movies or TV as a kid. I mean, really the extent of my uh, viewership was Happy Days. I liked Happy Days. But I didn't know much about film and television at all. And then I, I moved to L.A. and I fell in love with an actress. And she corrupted me. <laughs> I blame her. It's all her fault. <laughs> so you said you went to uh, uh, school, acting school. Well, Can you tell us a I little did. more about I mean, that? Well, Meg Ryan was in my class. Nick Cage were Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, it was the, the creme de la creme. I mean, uh, Lily Tomlin would come in and do her bits for our class. She was friends with the teacher. Peggy Fury was from the Actors Studio in New York. She uh, was old school. I mean, her connections were to Brando and Dean. And the actress studio, I mean, Lee Strasberg, she was his right-hand girl. So that was our connection. And it was Stanislavski Method, blah, blah, blah. And so I learned how to be a theater actor. And my girlfriend, I'm just going to get this out. I'm actually, it was Susan Day from the Partridge family. So she was a very famous, very famous actress. And uh, that really introduced me to fame. You know, I mean, being Mr. Day. <laughs> and uh, uh, the pool boy. So, uh, you know, I started out at the very top of the game. I mean, I was going to all the, you know, the, the red carpet and, you know, the people taking your picture, paparazzi and all that stuff. And then suddenly we split up and now I'm just another actor looking for a job. <laughs> so I had to claw my way the long way to what, I've achieved. So how does how does uh, something like Psycho Cop come about then? You had some minor well, that was in t- television prior to that, right? A couple. I mean, it was you know I was that was just getting started really, and that was, was a lucky break really. That movie meant a lot to my career. Obviously, it's still people are still talking about it, and uh, we're in, in fact I've written the script for number three, and we're actually raising the money for it. This number. Th- Three, the script kills hip-hop psycho cop, okay? Uh, <laughs> wow. Crazy ass. They're going to shoot you if you smoke that rock. Bang. Oh, he in the room. Got the nine out blazing and he laughing too. Fuck you, boy in blue. Me and my homies got our achies and we're going to boom. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. Uh, you got me doing a rap song. So we're looking like, forward to that one. Well, Adam Rifkin's going to direct it, so it's good to have him back. We had a screening of uh, number two, Returns, a couple months ago here in Hollywood, uh, the uh, new Blu-ray version of it, Restored Director's Cut. And the movie just completely kicked ass in a uh, sold-out movie theater. And so we were pretty pleased uh, the way it played. I mean, it held up. You know, it, it, it doesn't feel like it's a 90s film at all. Although the thing that I've done in in Psycho Cop 3 in the script is that I'm telling the story from the point of view of cop. I mean, he's driving the narrative as opposed to the victims being the, you know, the cop drops in every 
five minutes and kills a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're seeing it through Vickers, a, a night shift with Vickers. He's on his iPhone with Satan, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. I remember um, when Psycho Cop came out, we were talking about this before we got started talking with you. You know, the video stores, that's where we went to see all these amazing things that we were too young to be allowed to rent. And just remember uh, Psycho Cop. And then I remember Maniac Cop. And I remember thinking, how the hell are two crazy cop movies out at the same time? But I remember going with Psycho Cop and getting into that world first. But what was that? How, how does that kind of thing happen? Did one know well, about the other? It's funny that you mentioned that because I just met the screening I was telling you about. The director of Maniac Cop was there, William Lustig. And I've never, you know, I, I've never even watched Maniac Cop. I mean, I've seen a few seconds of it here and there. And I work with uh, Robert, uh, what's his name, uh, Davi, who was in, in the Maniac Cop. But so I run into Lustig. Adam Rifkin introduces me to William Lustig, the director, and I say to him, oh, you know, it's nice to meet you. You know, for the last 25 years, people have been coming up to me and saying, who would win in a fight between Maniac Cop and Psycho Cop? William Lustig looks at me and goes, yeah. I go, you're looking at him. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great moment. And, uh, yeah, that was funny. It was funny. Um, Well, the, the weird thing that happened was we ended up with the same distributor, uh, and there was a big lawsuit about the artwork being similar. And the reason the film got made uh, at all, the the producer of the film, Cassie Nelways, who is a pretty big-time producer, as it turns out, later won an Oscar for uh, Dallas Buyers Club. So he's made, you know, he made a ton of movies, later became the um, vice president of um, independent films of William Morris, which, you know, he, he went from producing to being an agent for 15 years, which is kind of where, you know, uh, Psycho Cop 2 came out and then he became an agent, so he was no longer producing. So that's one reason we never made more of the films. So where, what was, oh, um, how I got the part. Uh, I go to the audition. The, oh, the only reason that that uh, Elway's made the movie was because he liked the title. He never even read the script. He just made it because of the title. In fact, the funny story is, is we were trying to shake him, get, get the money loose from him, right? So they, the director and the producer say to me, why don't you go over to his office in Beverly Hills dressed as a cop? And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, yeah, get the costume, go over there, see if we can shake him loose. <laughs> so I rent the costume for 100 bucks from Western Costume. I show up at his office unannounced in Beverly Hills at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, and I sit there in his office and I act like psycho cop for about a half an hour. And he finally looks at me. And he's, okay, we'll make it. You know, so that's how, that's how we actually got it off the ground. The uh, producer on the film was Jessica Rains, who was Claude Rains' daughter. I'm a huge Claude Rains fan. I mean, he's a hell of an actor. Uh, if anybody doesn't know who Claude Rains is, check out a little film called Casablanca, maybe. Um, but of course he'd also done a horror film called the invisible man, which they uh, recently remade, I believe. But the, uh, the invisible man is just pure horror. You know I mean? It's beautiful really. Cause the horror character in that is t- so tortured by his invisibility at the end. It's not an advantage, you know, it, it's, uh, so anyway, um, we, when I go to the original audition, 
the piece that they had me reading for that was nothing from the script. It was from Sam Shepard's play, True West. Very famous play done by everybody. It's like a measuring stick for young actors, right? So I knew it. I knew it cold. I just seen John Malkovich and Gary Sinise do it. And it, Shepard's really tough, a playwright, to do. The language is so exact. And so I could hear all the other actors in there just butchering it, you know, because they're, you know, it's like I said, it's a hard piece to do, especially on a cold reading. I mean, you need months of uh, rehearsal to be able to play this, to do this thing. Like I said, I was ready to actually put it up on stage. I knew it. I'd been working on it in my class. So right away, I, I was so, you know, I, I mean, I won that part right there and then with the first audition. There was no doubt. I mean, I mean, I think immediately after that, I got the call. And I think it was, your movie was second, but probably not by more than a few months. And that's happened in Hollywood. I've seen, you know, you have your your three end-of-the-world movies that all seem to come out at the same time. Suddenly there's a Robin Hood, and then there's another Robin Hood, and this happens. And I always wonder how that coincidence happens. But then I start to think, well, there's got to be. It's, a, it's you know, you guys are in, a, in an industry. You talk within your industry. Did something leak out, well, you know, that this was being made well, and somebody else copied it? Listen, I, I was at a party one time and I pitched a movie called Kingpin, a bowling movie. And the oh. next thing I know, there's a bowling movie called Kingpin. And I learned also I was I and I don't want to say this <laughs> for sure, but I I was uh, I was at a party one time and I said, uh, you know what? That James Fenimore Cooper novel, The Last of the Mohicans, that needs to be remade. <laughs> Boom. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Michael Mann's. Uh, that's the greatest thing he ever did by far. I mean, that movie is perfect. That's a perfect movie. If Kingpin was your idea, that's one of my favorite movies, man. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. One of the things I always liked about Psycho Cop is Psycho Cop 2 comes out four years later, and it's almost like the tone has changed. And I'm always curious when I see that, because was it like a conversation like, hey, let's make this a little funnier. Let's give a little bit more depth to this character, you know, before he was a scary sort of you didn't get to know anything about him. Was that intentional that's, or is that just? Oh, yeah, no, that's, that's all director. You know, that's Adam Rifkin's not going to do what Wallace Potts did. Wallace Potts was, you know, an uh, old, he was a stuffy Southern gentleman. And, you know, there's no nudity in Psycho Cop 1. And, I've always, uh, you know, he had me uh, do a lot of looping uh, ADR work on that film where he was, he wanted me to make the character sound more uh, robotic was the word he kept using. Uh, and I never understood what he, <laughs> what he wanted. Although my inexperience, I let him, you know, dictate that. And now I would never do that. I would always, I would stick with the uh, original sound from the production. Uh, the, the Every time I watch that movie now, I remember what it sounded like when we shot the scene, not the way he had me loop it. So I hear the looping dialogue in my head. You know, I'm like, ah, that's not, look, the performance doesn't exactly match to the dialogue in my ear. I mean, I'm the only guy that knows that. So... I'm curious, like, there's a there's one of my favorite scenes, and I remember it as a kid, the final two that are running. Uh, you are you see them drive away, and then suddenly you're on the roof of the car. Like, I love stuff like that. So <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. He's got some superpowers there. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. When when you film stuff, do you kind of get a sense of order when they're filming it? And do you watch the movie and go, well, they sort of cut this out. I guess what I'm asking really is, do you sort of feel like sometimes you have control of this whole movie, you have control of the character, and then you see the final version and you say, well, those are choices I wouldn't make. How does that feel when no. this is your art too, you know? Uh, that's the dilemma. Right. I mean, that's the eternal battle between directors and actors about who is controlling the performance. Again, when we talk about ADR later, I learned that Brando loved ADR because he felt like that was the last chance he had to control the performance. Now he's only in a room with one guy. He's only got to fight with one guy about what he wants to do with it. Right. So that's why he always mumbled his dialogue so that he would, could get to the ADR room. Now you can see how they've assembled it. So you, it gives you a little bit more of an advantage uh, when, when you're hopefully stringing the movie together. I'll give you a, for instance, I was doing a movie with Nick Vallelonga who just won two Academy Awards for a little movie called Green Book. He was the writer director on the piece and there was this big, long, I had to do probably two pages of movie dialogue. And that's, you know, a long time, uh, two pages. I mean, the, the blocks of dialogue, they were huge. I, I felt like I was talking forever. And it was all exposition, right? I mean, it, I was explaining all these different things happening in the movie, which I hate to do. I hate to, you know, I mean, that's not what movies are supposed to do. You're supposed to show it, not talk it. But anyway, so the scene, he wanted me to yell this thing for like two pages. I mean, forever. Your girlfriend's a psycho, you know, went on and on and on. So I didn't want to do it that way. But I said to him, Kim, let's do it this way. So he said, sure, go ahead. So we do it the way I want to do it, which is much lower, much, you know, more nuanced. Then after it's over, I realized, well, hell, he's going <laughs> to, he's not going to choose my take. He's going to choose the ones he, he liked. You know, he wrote it that right way for a reason. So, you know, I, sure enough, then we watch, go and see the screening of the movie. There I am screaming for two minutes. So, you know, uh, that's how it goes. So, Robert, you do a lot of these uh, low, lower budget movies like Psycho Cop, Psycho Cop Returns, and a lot of the uh, horror movies and stuff that you're in. How does that uh, differ from them going to something like The Office that's like, now one of the most popular shows in the world. What's the audition process and all that like for, for something that's like a little... That doesn't really... The budget doesn't really change the work, right? I mean, the goodies are better. Craft service is better. <laughs> lunch is better. Dinner's better. You know, the accommodations are better. You know, NBC's flying first class. I mean, you know, so the perks are better. Uh, the attention's better, right? I mean, in this world, it's hard to get any attention on anything now, so it's stunning. I mean, what The Office has achieved after the fact, after it's been over, it's bigger now than it ever was, and only getting bigger. It's never been done before, so we're in new territory here. The thing is, is working on uh, low-budget films, it only made me ready for The Office to shoot that, that at that pace and those number of pages and, you know, really focusing, you know, I mean, you got to really concentrate hard when you're shooting uh, big budget stuff. You don't want to be the one that, to, to fuck up. <laughs> yeah. So I noticed all the, uh, the stuff 
uh, behind you there, the Vance Refrigeration uh, logo and all that stuff, whereas Bill calls it an icon. Is that all from the, from the set? Well, yeah. It's a genuine. Uh, one of the prop guys called me and said, let's have lunch. And he gave it to me. And recently, one of these, there were two of them. One of them sold at auction for $3,000. Oh, wow. so, and that wasn't, even, that wasn't even signed. So make your best offer because I'll sign it for you. And uh, let's start the bidding, I don't know, at $3,000. Um, no, that was the parking lot sign. And, you know, this is my uh, studio. I shoot Cameo.com videos. Are you familiar with Cameo.com? Yep. I, I do, you know, fan videos, weddings and graduations. I actually broke up with somebody. <laughs> that must have been awkward. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that one sucked. <laughs> so uh, you were introduced on the 10th episode of The Office, and your famous line from the show is? Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. <laughs> Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. Now, you know, I'm not tired of saying that. I've been saying it for 15 years. So I will say that that was chosen in one of these lists, you know, as one of the top, uh, number five on the top 10 office moments. I never thought anybody would include that on a top 10 office moment list. So. Yeah, it's a good one. Most of your, I mean, you're, you were in how many episodes? 24? 24, but... Five of them were doubles, so, you know, really 30. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, most, a lot of a lot of the episodes with you in it are some of the more famous episodes, the more popular ones. I did, well, the party, you know, Bob went to the parties. Mm-hmm. There was also a, a big fan theory that because Bob knew that it was being filmed for a documentary, that he was doing that for free advertising. Can you give us a little insight on that? Well, uh, what is that, Oakham's Razor? The, whatever is the simplest explanation is the correct one. That's it. I mean, Bob is aware. Listen, the f- key thing about Bob for me was that, that he was a combat infantry officer in Vietnam, okay? That dude uh, is not walking into a room and not noticing that there's documentary cameras. <laughs> I mean, he notices everything, everybody. He's, he's on constant alert. He's a Marine. I don't you know if you know any Marines, they're always Marines. They never stop being Marines. If you ever call it, tell a Marine, oh, you're an ex-Marine, they will correct that immediately. No, sir, I'm a retired Marine. I'm not an ex-Marine. I'm still a Marine. So that's always what governed Bob's behavior most. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah, my dad is a Marine. So was, was that something that they told you that you were supposed to portray, like a, a Vietnam Marine vet? Or is that something oh. that you added to the character? No, they, they that was in a script. I didn't take that. I didn't make that up. No, that's, you know, when you're first formatting the character, I don't want to get too, you know, silly in the process here, but, you know, you're looking for clues. So the writers give you clues. You know, Bob was, uh, the first material was more Michael Scott. He was more like Michael Scott. The one of the first lines was at the party uh, at office at the party. He says, "He says, oh that man, that's sick, sextastic. I can't even say it. Thank God they they got rid of that line." But when I learned about the Marine, yeah, uh, the other thing is, I when Bob comes in there, uh, 
all I was thinking there was hit these uh, dudes with some big energy <laughs> because that's the droll three of droll threes right there. Stanley, Kevin, and Ryan. <laughs> Come on. If that's not a disaster lineup, I don't know what is. Yeah, so uh, because I guess that was a, one of the things that they wanted you to portray was the Marine, I guess that's why um, when Phyllis says she likes to wear short skirts and uh, when you guys go out so you, she can watch you beat up people. Well, stop looking at her cleavage, man. <laughs> Listen, a, a good little bar fight every now and then. But these are things that the writers do as, as time went on, right? There's an incident in Africa where Bob runs over somebody, you know, on safari. I mean, uh, the, the Scranton Strangler, the mafia connections, the grand jury testimony. I mean, so they kept making him darker and darker. In fact, I had never even taken a drink uh, at any of the parties. Bob was, I was playing him as a teetotaler. And then all of a sudden, next thing I know, I'm drunk. <laughs> and, you know, just a throwaway line in the script. So now I have to incorporate all those things into uh, into the character. So now I get all these questions. <laughs> Is Bob the Scranton Strangler? Hell no, he's not. Is he the Mafia? Well, Mafia is such a, you know, I don't really want to define that. It, you know, could there be funny business with money? Maybe. Shipping refrigerators, who knows what happens there. Trucks disappear. Cargo gets lost. Who knows? Right. But you were the leader of the five families, right? Well, someone has to do that job. <laughs> That's, so was there uh, was there anything like an on-screen romance between you and Phyllis at all? I mean, you had quite you could definitely tell in the in the show that you you did have quite the connection with her. Well, no, it's acting. I love her as a person. I, I mean, I don't fake love. I mean, I you know, we really love each other. But as friends, I mean, not romantically but i realized in casino night we were sitting there when you know she wins with all the clovers and uh yesterday i did an interview and someone accused me of uh fixing that that hand for her to beat a world series of poker bracelet winner <laughs> would bob vance pay the dealer to give phyllis all the clovers i don't know that much about cards but anyway i told phyllis we were sitting there at the poker table and i said you, you remember your first love in junior high school you were just consumed by that person. You, you couldn't see anybody else. There was nobody else in your life. You, you didn't look at anybody else. You know I mean? There was only that person. Let's do that. Let's do first love. She said, okay. So that's what, that's what we played. The writers didn't come up with that. That was, that was me and Phyllis. Yeah. It worked well, man. You know, Bob and Phyllis had what everybody else on the show was trying to find, which was true love. So, you know, they were, you know, I get fan mail all the time, you know, the relationship goals of Bob and Phyllis. Was it hard to work on the set with anyone with uh, trying not to laugh or? No. You know, no? Not for me. No way. Like I said, I'm not going to, I am not there to blow takes. I'm there to speed the process up. And the last thing I want to do, uh, waste time. There's no time to be a cut up. Everybody always asks, was there improv on the show? The answer is no. Uh, the only improv is when, you know, at the end of the day, people are trying to make each other laugh or trying to make the blooper reel. But uh, nobody really, you know, Steve and um, Rain and and John, they could do they could do that. But the other actors didn't really 
didn't really waste time or blow takes. <laughs> so what's your favorite episode of The Office that you were on and why? No doubt. No doubt. You know the answer. It's Phyllis's wedding. Phyllis's wedding is beautiful. I saw it the other day. It was on Comedy Central. I hadn't seen it in years. And I watched it. And that episode is great. I mean, the emotional resonance in that is just beautiful. Michael's really weird. You know, he's creepy in that episode. But uh, the music in it, I mean, everything about it, I really liked it. And the great thing that happened was Greg Daniels had a viewing party at his house the night that episode aired on NBC. So everybody came for the party. And I'm standing out on the front porch (laughs) in Beverly Hills. And... um, who walks up at Harold Ramis, who is, you know, Harold Ramis is the great actor, director, writer. I mean, one of the greatest funny men Hollywood's ever known. And the first thing out of his mouth is Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. I'm like, holy shit. Harold <laughs> Ramis knows who I am. Which, you know, that this may sound weird to you guys, but it always surprises me when people know who I am, right? I'm like, how do they know? What's <laughs> up <laughs> with that? Because I, enter, I, uh, I, I auditioned for the Cohen brothers, right? And they knew me. They were like, Bobby, oh, Bobby Ray. And they knew me. And I'm like, how do they know me? <laughs> uh, you yeah, have such a diverse career. I mean, I got to think that, I got to think because of the popularity of The Office, that's probably the one you're most known from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I oh, remember yeah. watching the uh, the episode, you were talking about the wedding episode, where you, you knock on the door and, and Steve Carell opens the door, and you see, you know, your your bride to be, and you're not supposed to. And <laughs> I guess the, somebody farted, and that was like the joke. And I was just like, "This is the funniest thing because you look so angry, and I'm seeing Psycho Cop ready to kill Steve Carell." And I was having a little bit of a problem, kind of mixing the two <laughs> universes. But that was a well, great scene. Yeah, no, that's the thing at Phyllis's wedding. At and so Raymond, when Bob says the line, "If you ever lay a finger on Phyllis, I'll kill you." You know, and he does it really nice, smiley, and, you know, but the evil intent is certainly there. And uh, that killed Ramus. That, I was only watching, I was watching Ramus watch the show. You know, I was, I could care less what the rest of the people thought. But that line just killed the room, you know. And so when you make your uh, peers laugh, you know, you, you feel good about it. That, yeah, that's a good scene. So we got to wrap up soon, but I'm always curious to hear, you know, you have such a long career. What are some of the greatest things in your career that you remember you look back fondly on that just always, you know, stay with you? And then also, what's maybe some of the the, the worst moments? Like, what's something that maybe happened where you're like, oh, you know, I, it was not great, that didn't work out so good, but I've learned from it. I always like to hear both sides of professional lives. Well, it's always the, the making of the picture or the TV show that the making of it is the thing. It's not the the finished product, although you like for those things to both be good, right? I always tell this little story. I, I was doing a, a play, a, a, a cowboy play. It was called Mojave. And uh, I had this big monologue. I was standing at my father's grave. And, you know, I, I'm talking down, oh, man, you were this, you were that, you were a son of a bitch. And all of a sudden, the director stops me and he goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm talking to my father. What do you think I'm doing? And he's like, uh, well... Uh, no, your father's not in the ground. He's up in heaven. Stop looking at the ground. And so the second I changed that, just that little move there from seeing him in the ground 
to talking to him in heaven, well, you know, that changed everything. I mean, the emotion that that suddenly freed up. I was weeping like a newborn baby. I mean, it was <laughs> it was really powerful. I like little moments like that, you know. The only down times, I think, are when directors try to screw with me psychologically. You know, that's a tactic that directors will use. You know, that's what Dick, Dick Dixter says. The very first line of the movie is, you got to do what you got to do to get the shot. So, you know, the director will do anything to get his shot. So you have to learn how to protect yourself in that situation. You can't, you're not a puppet. You know, you're your own artist. And uh, I don't really like people messing. And, and it doesn't happen very often. Trust me. I'm six foot five, 225 pounds. So you, you, you have your hands full. I can guarantee you that. I'm a West Virginia Hill. Never forget that. <laughs> Where in West Virginia are you from? Charleston. Charleston. Oh, it's beautiful there. Yeah, I, I travel for work, and oh, I've yeah. been there uh, quite a few times recently. Uh, there's a oh, good barbecue really? place there. Where are you yeah. at? We're in Pennsylvania. Where are you at? Oh, Pennsylvania. okay. Yeah, but I travel. I, I've been to Charleston, uh, and uh, there's a good barbecue place there that I recommend. It's called Dem Two Brothers. It's really good. We're about an hour from uh, Philadelphia, west of Philadelphia. Okay. We're pretty close to Scranton. Yeah. yeah. I've been there a bunch in, uh, obviously, in the last 15 years. I like Scranton. Yeah. Yeah, so Scranton Robert, loves Bob Vance. Everybody, love, everybody loves Bob Vance, man. Well, I was there, I was there to throw out a baseball at the, the, the Rail Riders. Uh, the Yankees AAA team has a beautiful stadium there. And so, so I was at this little restaurant in downtown Scranton, you know, with some of the newspaper people. And word got out that I was there. <laughs> uh, you know, somebody made a call. So all of a sudden, there were all these University of Scranton students that had come running <laughs> down the hill to this restaurant. And they were all sweaty and, you know, here, talk to my father. Bob Vance is here. You know, it was like a pandemonium. And I, I, I was felt like a beetle. You know, so it was a good, it was always a good feeling. That's got to be awesome, man. So I heard you yeah, say man. that you're a, you're a theater, that you did a, lo- a little bit of theater work too. What, what do you prefer, yeah. film or theater? Well, theater is way more engaging for an actor. I mean, uh, you sustain a performance for two hours consecutive. You know, uh, film and television is little starts and stops. You work in 30 second burst a minute. Now we're going to relight it. See, that was the thing I was going to say earlier, the difference between low budget and big budget. Dixter, we were doing 15 pages a day. The pace is frenetic. Then I went and did uh, Pee Wee's Big Holiday, which was a huge budget film. And so we, uh, you know, we said a lot of sitting around, <laughs> a lot of waiting for, the, for everything to be perfect. You know, I mean, the set design and the costumes. And so the whole day was spent getting the shots ready as opposed to shooting, 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 which is... Uh, Really, the world that I like. I like yeah. to work. I don't like yeah. waiting around to shoot. No, then theater makes sense. Robert, thank you so much for you know taking some time to chat with us. Um, <laughs> this was fascinating. Learned a lot. Hope you had fun as well. And you know, hopefully, we get a chance to talk again when Psycho Cop Three comes out. Pop Psycho Cop. So, Robert, tell tell everyone where they can find uh, Dick Dixter and find all your your work. You have a website. Oh. I just also, sorry, I purchased uh, uh, some Vance refrigeration stuff from, uh, is that Redbubble where you can get 
that stuff? Is that you? Well, there's tons of stuff. I mean, there's pages and pages. There's baby, there's shower curtains, for God's sakes. <laughs> I mean, this is your NBCstore.com right here. Of course, that's licensed. Uh, that's the official logo. NBC used to have a lot of take. I mean, they would take down uh, people that were infringing on the copyright, but not anymore. They just let them, uh, all these designers of, you know, I mean, advanced refrigeration is science everywhere. What was the question? Uh, where can people find all your work and get some advanced oh. refrigeration licensed uh, from you, advanced refrigeration merchandise? I do not. I, I spend money on this stuff, guys. I don't make money off of it, okay? All I do is buy it and give it to people. They all think it's free. Hey, can I get one of those hats? Yeah, sure. Let me give you a hat. You know, <laughs> I got to buy that stuff to give it away. But that's uh, the cost of doing business. Uh, Dick Dixers everywhere, Amazon Prime, YouTube, Google Play, any Redbox, anywhere streaming is happening. Uh, I believe it's available on DVD as well. Funniest movie of the year, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a good one, man. We enjoyed it. Very much so. It's funny. Do not attempt any drinking games. Do not drink when you hear the name Dick Dixter. You'll die. Not <laughs> in the first act. Or do not even attempt drinking games when Dick gets kicked in the nuts. I don't know how many times we did it, but, you know, the director, my cousin, Chris Ray, he's like, do you think we've kicked him in the nuts one too many times? I'm like, ah, let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like when uh, the little man is doing, you know, the, uh, the, is doing the Rock'em Sock'em Robots. I remember when we were cutting it, I was like, more noise. We need more punching noises there. <laughs> <laughs> That was a good one. That was a good scene. That's why I hired that whole. I, I first of all, I'd worked with him before. I love that guy, Pancho Moller, played Teddy Spitz, the gay costume designer. But the whole scene was set up. The whole conceit of it was set up just for that bar fight scene where you know his height. He's so small that he he's right at my crotch, and I'm like, that's funny. That's going to be funny. That needs to go on. You know. And so every time I would turn in, you know, the editor would be trying to take more out of it. I'd be like, no, 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 no. Let's let that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. A in your balls. That's funny. Everybody knows that's funny. Yeah, we highly recommend uh, everyone to check out Dick Dixter. This has been fun, man. We really appreciate it. All right, man. CNPA.